0: Status check.
1: Go Atlas. Go Siltar. Go Solar Orbiter. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. Yeah, that looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter
0: down in this room.
2: Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah?
3: Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham.
4: And I'm Sue Nelson. And this time, the emotional launch of Solar Orbiter. Planet hunting with a Nobel Prize winner and celebrating Britain's first space rocket.
3: Now, there are very few guests we can entice into our glamorous Letchworth Garden City studio. (laughs) But science writer, author, and broadcaster Dr. Stuart Clark is one of them. It was the, or biscuits. the, only... <laughs> it was the, the biscuits. It was the biscuits was the free wasn't it?
5: Hello, Stuart. Hello. I'm just desperate to get out. <laughs> not not of the studio, you mean? I
3: mean,
4: that's... it's it's compact. Let's put it that way. Now, I've got to admit that um, I'm a, a little bit of a philatelist. In that, ever since I was a kid, I had a stamp album. I sort of. Collected stamps for a long time until I donated my entire album to Blue Peter for a Blue Peter appeal, and then in the last sort of ten years, I've I've been back at it collecting space stamps though in, in particular, and I've quite often put threads of stamps on uh, on the Space Boffin's Twitter feed and on Facebook a couple of times, and so really I feel Stuart that we ought to also introduce you as writer of the Royal Mail's prestige stamp book and I'm very excited about that because this book accompanies these uh, visions of the universe space stamps to mark the 200th anniversary of the Royal Astronomical Society and I haven't been able to get my hands on them because they're sold out. And you've brought them with you. I'm very I've excited. I brought them with it. yes. Let's have, have a look. Let's have a look. I have. Let's... I know this is uh, audio, but we could we could just yes. This 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 this,
5: this is an item gorgeous. that was made for radio. Um, <laughs> here's the here's the stamps. Have a look.
4: Oh, they are beautiful. Red, all sorts of colours: red, orange, blue. Oh, there's Rosetta Comet sixty-seven P. Yep, I hadn't so. realized. It's funny because I've seen individual pictures of some of the stamps, but I hadn't realized there was Comet sixty seven P. And obviously, I have a, a very personal liking for, for that. Because, Absolutely. And, what, and all explain of the stamps, what the others are. Yeah. So
5: all all of the stamps and all of the research topics that uh, were chosen um, had a link into UK science. So each one of these, uh, so the, the black holes, for example, that's up there on the top right, that was because of the work that Stephen Hawking did on on black holes, understanding them, and Hawking radiation, things like that.
4: And Enceladus, you've got Enceladus and geezers, and I assume that's to do with... The Cassini Imperi- mission and, yeah, Imperial and Imperial College. And, and, yes, Imperial College being part of that dis- discovery there. And you've got the Cat's Eye Nebula, that's that beautiful red with the blue centre yes
5: and this was particularly important for historical reasons in the uk because of william huggins and the spectroscopic work that he did on the cat's eye nebula and william huggins in the 19th century was a very very prominent member of the the royal astronomical society an early member
4: and we have pulsars which uh, I'm assuming is Jocelyn, Jocelyn Bell Burnell.
5: Absolutely. Yeah, and way. what you don't know is that the, uh, the Royal Mail, um, they do a yearbook every year. And so I've just written a chapter in the yearbook all about the, the pulsars there, based on the stamps and uh, the story of, of Jocelyn Bell.
4: That's great, isn't it? It's a great way to get sort of space and astronomy to a, a wider audience. And, and these are, are genuinely,
3: we're not making this up, they're genuinely hugely popular. Yes, they've done really well.
5: Yes, they're they're genuinely hugely popular. I was astonished at the uh, positive reaction to them on Twitter. You know, they they created a real moment of wonder.
4: Yeah, well, let's say they are stunningly beautiful, and I would. uh... I would search my handbag before you leave, Stuart, because these might have disappeared through someone's hands. <laughs> they are lovely. So. Well,
5: I'll tell you what, Sue. The Royal Mail, as you can see here, from uh, from them scattered all across the desk. They were very generous in in what they sent, and they sent me multiple copies of the first day cover.
4: Ooh. So, if
5: you would like a first day cover, oh wow! Um, please accept that as a gift.
4: Oh. Thank you so much.
5: Gift giving on space
4: boffins. We should
3: have this as a regular feature. In fact, there is another gift coming up very shortly.
5: So to all stations, this is OD on the briefing loop and we have solar array deployment.
3: Now, that was recorded in the main control room at the European Space Operations Centre, ESOC, in Darmstadt, Germany. It's the moment we knew Solar Orbiter was safely on its way to study the sun. Solar Orbiter was built in the UK, in fact, just down the road from here in Stevenage. And the European Space Agency missions fitted with a special heat shield, enabling it to take the closest ever pictures of the sun, and the first of the polls. Now, I was commentating on the launch for ESA, which was, well, it was, it was more an emotional experience than than I expected, and I think than I'd experienced before with these these commentaries. Uh, ESA's senior advisor for science and exploration, Mark McCochran, was speaking at a press event for the launch in a in
1: a nearby room, and uh, we had a chat afterwards. We watched along, and of course, things went very well, and the the launch went perfectly the acquisition of signal the solar arrays and uh, of course that's how we like it now we like things to be as we call it nominal occasionally it's not bad if something slightly goes wrong to prove the mettle of everybody here in recovering
3: i was started off in in mission in actually in the in the main control room and then you know just a few meters
1: away for the rest of the the launch coverage though so it was peculiar you could feel the tension in the air here I think that's something very special about ESOC is uh, I've been here many times for many events um, the team in the main control room of course are there for a purpose they're well trained they've been practicing for ages there's a lot hangs on them I mean it's not all automatic there's a lot of things they have to do and I think you're absolutely right there's there's something very special about the feeling in the room in those moments and if you think back to uh, Rosetta for example sort of the classic case where emotions spilled out in public on several occasions cheering when uh, things went very well, and then the the, the ultimate sadness of Sylvain Lodio, who was in the control room again this morning, um, when he had to basically declare that Rosetta was dead when it, was, when it hit the surface in 2016. And even me, I'm an astronomer. Um, I'm not a solar physicist, um, you know, kind of jack of all trades, master of none. I know enough to be able to get up on stage and talk about it. But it hit me right at uh, the acquisition of Signal and, the, and then the, the solar arrays being deployed. I'm suddenly standing on stage saying thank you to everybody, and I well up. It's, it's at those moments where you realise... That this is decades of human endeavour. Uh, people have um, worked incredibly hard on various aspects, whether it's software programming or actually building hardware, or all the planning that goes on here. And the people preparing for all the science. I mean, so in, in some, for some people, it's kind of the end of the process. We've taken it to this point. It's yours, and for others, it's just the beginning. And I think that kind of confluence of emotion really, really comes through. And ESOC. Might, I work at estec and my friends there won't thank me for saying it, but in many ways, ESOC is the heart of ESA because it's where the missions, as they say, the missions come alive. But it's all about the people, and I've got so many good friends here, and we shared so many emotions. So uh, it's good to see them back in the control room today. Uh, and as
3: you say, with this mission, I seem to have been reporting on Solar Orbiter forever. I mean, from the from its conception to its const- initial construction, and then they had to rethink how it was how it was made, and then I mean, even the testing seems to. Have, taken you know 18 months or so and then finally it, it launched and it actually launched bang on time yeah. um, but it, it really has been a long time coming now now it's really actually the start of the mission
1: well you know if, if you something close to my heart's the james webb space telescope and that of course has been in development for an enormous number of years and 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 I feel that, you know, people, there's a lot of pressure on us. You know, why are you late? Why is it expensive? Why is it taken so long? And it's just the same answer as it is for Solar Orbiter. It's because we're doing something incredibly hard. And if we knew how to do it at the beginning, it wouldn't almost be worth doing because we would have solved the problems. So scientific community is very good at setting colossal challenges in terms of what they want to achieve and how that flows down to, you know, what kind of spacecraft, where does it need to be, what instruments... But almost by definition, nobody's done this before. So Solar Orbiter has been challenging technologically managing that 500 degrees centigrade on one side, minus 200 on the other. I mean, to the point, and as I, you know, I, I regret every time I mention it, but it's a lovely story, is the fact that it's got charred animal bones on the front. You know, that that was the solution. That was not known at the beginning, and that was found later on. But so many other aspects of the of the way the mission's been put together, the electromagnetic cleanliness um, managing power. I mean, it, it just one of these, these these little stories. Everybody will look today, perhaps, at solar organs and say, oh, it's got quite big solar wings, right? It's 18 meters across. Why are they so big? You're going so close to the sun. You should have plenty of power. It's like, well, there's too much power. They'll melt. So you have to tilt them edge on, and then you don't have much collecting area. So You need big ones. And, and, and Paolo Ferry mentioned something to me, which he hadn't thought about and I hadn't thought about until just now, why are all the deployments for the rest of the mission going to take such a long time? Why is it all slow? Well, because we have this blinking great heat shield on one side, which is too good. It makes the rest of the spacecraft incredibly cold. So we've we've effectively made a giant fridge out there, and all the motors don't really want to work very quickly. So all of those challenges had to be solved. And I, I like to think that people understand that, that even though there's frustration and and that you know people are impatient, let's do more, let's get there sooner. When you start seeing what we deliver from these missions, the the the, the fantastic insights we gain into the way the solar system works, the way the universe works, which would not be possible with all of that work being done. I think there's a, you know, slightly political lesson to be learned about what it takes to solve major challenges in society. Climate change is not there's no easy fix. It's gonna take exactly the same kind of long-term, rational, hard work to fix. So in a way, I think you know, crazy that sort of the longer and the harder they are, almost the better because it's demonstrating that we're doing something fantastically challenging. ESA's Mark McCockran, I promised you another gift story before we get back
3: to the uh, emotions of launch. Uh, anyone who's watching the launch coverage, I wore for the last part of the uh, of the commentary when I was on TV. This, were you on uh, TV? Rich? I was on TV when yeah. I was on this yeah, yeah, TV. Yeah. I wore this uh, <laughs> solar orbiter T. I won this. Uh, wore this uh, uh, solar orbiter T-shirt which is this lovely T-shirt, te- a really good T-shirt. Yeah, in fact, but, you, you got me one. Yeah, but I'd, really I'd, I'd, I'd commented uh, the day before to the woman in the ESA shop at ESOC that this was quite an expensive T-shirt, that it was, you know, 26 euros. I mean, it's really good. All the ESA stuff is really good, but it was 26 euros. I said, it's really quite expensive. She said, I'll give it to you free if you wear it on television. Oh,
4: so that, is that the only so, reason they you They say everyone it?
3: has their price and every <laughs> journalist has their price. Turns out yep. mine is 26 euros. 26 <laughs> <Six> euros. <laughs> So that's, that's how cheap I am. <laughs> it's Still, about double what oh, what I, I'd go for. I
4: I, I do wonder then um, how much that solar orbiter umbrella is that you brought back because that was. Stunning. Oh, they, they
3: were giving those away to oh, us. Really?
4: Oh, they're really amazing. Yeah, really I good. must. I uh, would like to say that uh, Mark McCochran, the only man I know who thinks charred animal bones is a lovely story. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> what 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 is the whole charred animal bones thing? Well,
3: it's it is the um, Stuart will know about this. The the heat shield itself. They had all sorts of problems because they've got this huge challenge with Solar Orbiter of it being 500 degrees on one side with the sun and pretty much absolute zero, how cold space is on the other side. So the heat shield is crucial. They've tried all sorts of coatings to get it right. And that's why it took so long to develop. And they ended up with this sort of black paint, which is made of charred animal bones.
5: Simply because it's got um, superb thermal properties and... You know, that can help diffuse the heat. I do know a nice little aspect to this story. There was an artist in, uh, I used to have an artist-in-residence program, and one particular artist um, was inspired by this story because charred animal bones are one of those pigments that early humans would use to make cave drawings
4: i never knew that
5: God. and so here you have a material that was used for artistic purposes in the paleolithic and nowadays we're still using it to explore the sun to get as close as i we mean can you to know the you think, okay you now, think now that about
4: is it. i wouldn't yeah. say lovely story but that is really interesting i, I mean you think that. about
5: it you know the, you know it's
3: no different to wearing leather shoes for example but you could Perhaps say that it's not a vegan (laughs) spacecraft.
4: Yes. Oh, nice, that's nice. Um, Now, Stuart, the mission's on its way, but it's going to take quite a while, isn't it, though, to actually get there?
5: Yeah, it's good, uh, a good number of years in the cruise phase so that it can wind down to this orbit that's um, closer to the Sun than Mercury. I mean, the, the, that's about a quarter or so of the distance between um, the Sun and the Earth it's going. Um, and it's
4: got to change its orbit, hasn't it, as well, in order to actually see the, the Sun's poles?
5: Yes, yeah, so once it gets into its first orbit, it will effectively be looking at the equatorial regions of the sun and then gradually it will sort of crank its orbit upwards so that it starts looking at higher and higher latitudes.
4: And we'll get the first ever close-up images of of both poles.
5: Yes, there's an awful lot of science to be done before you get those images but this is the most important thing about this mission is that it's, it's operating as close to the sun in a continuous fashion as it's possible to do with current technology. So the NASA mission, the Parker Solar Probe, does go closer to the sun than Solar Orbiter, but it, it, it sort of screams in and out um, and can't use a camera, you know. But Solar Orbiter is as close as you can possibly get with the camera technology we've got today, and so it can continuously monitor what's going on.
3: I, I did want to, want to pick up a bit on the um, the emotions, because you were both there for the Rosetta, you know, right the way through yeah. Rosetta, and particularly the, the Philae landing um, and I, I don't know whether, you know, we all see, saw those images of the, that final switch off, which was really, really poignant of the spacecraft. Did you get the same sense then? Because I, I really felt that, you know, I've, I've done a lot of these these launches, but I really I hadn't felt that sense of emotion quite the same.
5: Yes, for me, the, the switch off. I was there for, um, I was in ESOC for wake up and for the whole week of the landing, and then there for the, the final end of the mission. And the, the wake-up was probably the most um, unexpected one for me. So they
3: know, because this, this was Rosetta, it had been out there for quite a while, hadn't it? And they knew, it, they knew it's working.
5: Three years in hibernation, and it, the, the most important thing was that this was the spacecraft waking up on its own. It wasn't that you sent a signal to say, wake up. This was that you had to have programmed all of this from launch and then it would go through this hugely long program of spinning up and finding Earth, warming up, and then uh, you know, uh, sending its signal back to Earth. It was completely automated and you didn't know. And like, uh, you know, like the best actor uh, putting on the best story... It was about 15 minutes late. There'd been a reboot 15 minutes into the beginning of this process like on the Madonna, spacecraft. Like Madonna. Yeah, just knows how to make an entrance. <laughs> so it wasn't long enough for people to give up hope, um, but it was long enough for people to start to worry. And then, of course, bang, the signal came through. It was the most extraordinary moment. Having said that, the landing and oh, all of yes, that—oh yeah. my oh, goodness yeah, me! Yeah,
4: yeah. So, and that's I quite like that because I I think there was a tradition of particularly I think the Europeans not making any expression <laughs> at all to the point where you you would like sorry when did it happen? You know, if you're sc- scrolling through the footage or something, because you actually can't hell mm-hmm. um the Americans um you know had got the whoop, whoop, whoop whoop thing you know very early on, no you you know immediately and um yeah i i do I do like it now that they've let through because it gives some of that feeling because it does give people an idea of, of what it means to them. And I think with Solar Orbiter, particularly people like Lucy Green, who you know we've had on the podcast and who's a solar physicist, she's been involved in the Solar Orbiter mission for a long time. Like you said, Rich, I feel as though I've been doing interviews on Solar Orbiter for the past 400 years. It just goes back that long. And no wonder, because if I was one of the scientists who'd been involved right at the start and and going through and then you wait and you wait and obviously you're working on other things I think I would shed a tear too yeah just the thought that finally finally it's launched Mm -hmm. and then actually the real wait then begins (laughs)
5: yeah 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 I remember um, writing for ESA a, a good many years ago now and I can't remember which particular launch it was um but well, this engineer, uh, he did let his guard down in the interview and he said to me, I will feel very emotional when it launches. He said, because my job is done, but I will also know I will never see that spacecraft again. But I you know, I've spent every day for the last five or more years, ten years, with that spacecraft, and I will never see it again. So I will shed a tear on launch. Oh, That's lovely. I should mention the
3: uh, Solar Orbiter mission is supported by the UK Space Agency, who also very kindly support the Space Boffins podcast. Thank you. Oh, do you want to say that again? No, do you want to say that on no. mic? Do you want no. to say thank right. you? Thank you, <laughs> thank you. It about the same. Uh, yes. <laughs> in a moment, <laughs> a first for the, yes, thank you. Uh, in a moment, a first for Space Boffins, a Nobel Prize winner. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists.
4: You can find us on social media and we'll put some pictures up um, of today's recording and also some of those beautiful stamps, uh, as well as some of the ones I've got in my collection, actually. That will give me an excuse to hunt out a few of the more unusual ones, as well as a, a chance to uh, put up these gorgeous ones. Uh, for the Royal Astronomical Society.
3: Well, on the subject of the Royal Astronomical Society, funny you should mention that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We must also encourage you to listen to another great new space podcast. It's the new astronomy podcast from the Royal Astronomical Society called the Supermassive Podcast, uh, presented as in supermassive black holes. You, Polly. Got I, that? I, we got that. Yeah. You got that. <laughs> never,
5: um, never explain a joke. No,
3: okay. no.
4: He's not an idiot. <laughs>
3: <laughs> anyway, it's called the Supermassive Podcast, presented by astrophysicist docker, Doctor Docker, presented by astrophysicist Doctor Becky. I,
4: I want a Docker. <laughs> a docker. My a docker. granddad was well, a Docker. That, Go not? on. Don't murder. That would be <laughs> what, a, that would be a good on. niche come podcast, <laughs> wouldn't it? <there>? A space <laughs> podcast
3: p- specifically for dockers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, the Supermassive <laughs> Podcast, presented by astrophysicist Doctor Becky. Becky Smethurst and Boffin Media's Izzy Clark.
4: Now, uh, before Christmas, a Soyuz rocket lit up the night sky in a launch from the European spaceport in French Guiana. Now, let's enjoy that countdown en français.
1: Attention au final: 10, 9, 8,
2: 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, Unité, décollage.
4: While well, on board was Kiopsal. Keopsa, a small but powerful telescope that may or may not be pronounced Cheops or Keops, It will measure the light of stars outside the solar system and how that light changes as planets orbit around them. Now, the three-and-a-half-year mission will build on the work of the Kepler and TESS missions. It's led by Switzerland in a partnership between ESA member states and will examine up to 500 targets. There are currently now over 4,500 known exoplanets which is quite a leap since Michel Mayor and Didier Kahlo discovered the first exoplanet orbiting a sunlight star in nineteen ninety five an achievement that last year saw both men jointly be awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics. while well, Chaops concludes its commissioning phase this month and will soon start its science mission. Didier Kahlo is chair of the Chaos Science Team and splits his time between the UK and Switzerland as Professor of Physics at Cambridge and Professor of Astronomy at the University of Geneva. So I caught up with him, sadly in Cambridge, not Geneva, and began with a simple but important check. Is it Chaos or Cheops?
2: Chaos looks, looks, I think, better because it's a bit of a. A game between Switzerland (CH) and then Keops, of course. I mean Keops. I mean the Egyptians. So, and I, I don't really know. I mean in French is Keops, in English maybe Keops because the way English is done. So I don't, I don't think there is a proper way to do it. Well, but good. I'm glad. But it's but in, I think there is a lot of. A, let's then. be let's be open-minded. <laughs> these days, it's good to be open-minded to differences.
4: Yeah, <laughs> and, and, I mean, and that choice of name is quite significant, isn't it, in terms of what the telescope is doing?
2: Yeah, I think what the name is trying to capture is first it 's the first time that Switzerland is leading on a satellite a scientific satellite. They have been building parts and bits of rockets or satellites since a long time, but never really. Leading a satellite, so that was really the idea: is to have something that would show this is the Swiss satellite. And ah, so the CH game.
4: at the beginning yes. has a double yes. sort of meaning. Yes, it's
2: Confédération Helvétique. Mm. It's, it's the old name of the Swiss. It's confederaticus Conféderatiqueus. This there's Latin stuff. Uh,
4: yeah, I just remember from it's, it's a knockout or yeah, things like that. That's you why, know, that's why Switzerland,
2: Switzerland is CH because of this. So oh. that's a bit of the of the name.
4: And um what situation are we at at the
2: moment? So the satellite is working extremely well. So we are at the orbit where we wanted the satellite to be. We have run all the pre-commissioning phase, when testing the, con- the thermal control systems, which is essential here because in low Earth orbit there's a lot of differences. Whether you're on the shadow on the bright side, and keeps moving and keeps changing. So it's it's an essential bit because we want to maintain the very high stability in the satellite. So this is working extremely well. The CCD is working well. We did something major not so long ago, which is opening the cover. And uh, that was a big event because it's a single failure element. So he has to open, otherwise you stack. <laughs> a you big stack. size of yeah. relief there, yeah. yeah. otherwise you stack with a telescope, which is observing, but only the dark sky because of your cover. <laughs> now if we open it and we had already, I can tell you, the first image. We're very pleased with the first image.
4: Now, Chaops is looking at known exoplanets.
2: So exoplanets that have been identified around known stars so we are a kind of a hunting machine following up high level of information. So we know what, what star to look at. We know when to look at. And it makes the mission extremely efficient. You have to realize when you do transit and you look for transit as part of a survey, well, most of the stars you're looking at, they may have plenty of planets, but the geometry of the system is such that they don't transit. So you lose 95% of the star already that having a planet doesn't mean that you will have a transit. So it's, it's poorly efficient to find them, uh, if you want to say. And then even worse than that, even if you have a transit, the transit is a very short moment when you have something interesting happening. is when the star and the planet are being aligned. But most of the time they're not because the, they're just going around. So you staring at a, at a star, which has a few percent chance to have a transit, assuming there is a planet, and most of the time, I mean more than 90% of the time, nothing is going to happen because there is no transit. So we end up with a system which is absolutely, in terms of, of efficiency, a very poor efficient system. But it's one way to find a planet, and we don't have so many ways to find a planet. Well, now you can imagine that you know that that star has a has a planet. You know that that star has a transiting planet, and you know roughly when it's transiting planet. Well, your telescope is, is absolutely super efficient. And that's what Keops is is going to do. So Keops is going to go for the one that we know, but we're going to improve dramatically the knowledge on that transit, because given the capability we have to observe at the right time, and with still a big telescope for that kind of game, because the stars are bright, we will end up with an extremely accurate size for the planet at the end, after computing all the stuff and correcting them for the, for the size of the star. And from that, we will have better insight about the, the true nature of the planet we're talking about. And then this will reflect on the formation mechanism and better understanding of all these objects that we have found so far.
4: What's quite extraordinary is that considering the distance of these exoplanets, Is the fact that you can look at their atmosphere. Yes. What are you hoping to gain from studying the atmosphere? What can you learn about the planet by looking at the atmosphere?
2: The atmosphere of a planet is part of the global understanding of the planet because you cannot only rely on some basic parameter like the mass and the size to have descriptions or what exactly is this atmosphere. And there's a very good example in the solar systems. I mean, you look at Jupiter and Saturn, there is still a difference in mass and size. But when you look at the picture and when you go, they are really, really different. And, uh, and, and you, even one that have uh, very nice rings. So you can even imagine finding rings on planet using transits. That has not been found yet, but it's one of the programs that we're hoping to just... We're trying, we're trying to look at this with cubes, whether there is possibility on some of them. So you see, the mass and the size doesn't tell you the whole story there. Uh, and you even have satellites, and they're not the same. So whether we can find satellites or not, it's a very, very interesting um, um, topic right now, because satellites tell you something about the formations of these planets. Now, if you go on the other side, on the smallest planet, we have Earth and Venus. Well, on the paper, they look exactly the same. They have the same mass and the same size. Well, they're pretty much different. So getting the atmosphere of a planet is part of the story on
4: your uh, notice board behind you in your in your office which is where we are now yeah. i love this little poster with planets blue and it says dear planet earth now i'm on the hunt for your look-alike." yes yours didier yes
2: yeah this is part of the profiling of my job here in cambridge <laughs> to attract some sponsors yeah exactly us we're doing i mean we're really trying to figure out all this is about the solar system in a way but but you cannot study properly the solar system by only studying solar systems. You really have to reflect the solar system against the many systems that exist in the universe and we have found quite of the awkward you know, uh, systems around and we 're trying to fit this into a global uh, understanding and we 're still frustrated on that because the solar system we 're missing the earth uh, equivalent we 're missing part of the Saturns and the kind of, even the jupiter they 're not very common the way we have in the solar system so we 're working really on that, trying how can we while at the same time we acknowledge the diversity of the exoplanet systems, how far are we special? And uh, and there's a couple of, uh, of ongoing experiments right now which is really working on that. And uh, it's a combination of space and ground trying to figure out where are this uh, other Earth that we're all trying to find.
4: Nobel Prize winning Didier Kahlo, who incidentally meant that sounded like I've been drinking (laughs) there who incidentally uh, mentioned he'd come up with the idea for the mission with Andrew Cameron who's a professor of astronomy at University of St. Andrews on the slopes while they were skiing and I sort of love that the fact that you know most of us would be thinking when do we have the apres ski and they're like no what sort of mission do we need well didn't they they come up didn't they
3: famously come up with the um, name for the uh, European mission to uh, Jupiter juice in the pub and it's literally well, it on the back like of a book. Like exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I
4: like I like the fact that Alan Stern, um, when I'd asked him about, you know, okay, w- why have you come up with the name of Alice for the Alice instrument on Rosetta? And he just said, oh, I just like the name. I <laughs> well, thought that's perfect. That's exactly how it should be. Yeah. Um, no.
3: I, I'm just wondering, Stuart, because you've you've written a lot on on this and this search for mm. Earth 2.0. Mm. We're sort of obsessed with this, aren't we? And it's not just any old planet, we want an, another Earth.
5: Yeah, and there's a very simple reason for that, I think, is that we still don't know how life began on Earth. And so if you're going to look for potentially habitable planets, you sort of take the unknowns out of, of, of the equation, if you like. And so the best thing to do is to try and find the exact copy of earth um, because then you say okay if it happened on earth then it could potentially have happened there as well and so it just takes some of the sort of uncertainty out of it but also we're just obsessed aren't we we want to know how special or different we are i think it's a super important question
4: yeah no so do i i like the fact that you know as chaos has sort of launched and gone off we've also said farewell to another big telescope which is spitzer which recently um officially ended Mm. i mean what would you say its legacy spitzer's legacy has been this after 16 years in operation
5: in tandem with herschel you know it has helped us open up this the the infrared universe in a way that we'd never looked at before you know these they were observatories that were targeted Observatories, so general purpose, you could look for whatever you wanted with them. They weren't just simple survey telescopes. And perhaps the biggest legacy, really, of those missions is the experience they've given astronomers at observing the infrared universe, which um, is hopefully going to pay off in spades with the James Webb Space Telescope. August, uh, on, on this idea of the infrared universe,
3: essentially, heat is that. Is that fair? What are you actually seeing with infrared
5: yeah, so you're seeing all of the longer wavelength radiation that comes from objects that are um well you know below a thousand degrees or so something of of that order, so they 're not hot enough to radiate visible light like the stars, um so they 're dim, so you can 't see them with normal telescopes, but you can see them with the infrared. And also, um, you can get into the high redshift universe as well, where the light uh, has been stretched hugely.
4: KOPS is a really small telescope, actually, because I was in the clean room with it. At the University of Bern, and it's only it's about one and a half meters in length. I I couldn't believe how something that's going to do this much science is just so mm. compact. Mm. Um, it's going to be looking at atmospheres of of planets as well, as well as mm. like it can also do Neptune and uh, yes, this... um, Uranus, the icy. Uh, Yeah, so
5: these smaller telescopes and smaller um, space missions, they generally tend to be um, highly directed towards answering specific problems, and that's why you can sort of keep them small. You're not trying to make them general purpose in any way. And I think one of the most important things that um, KEOPS has to do is um, to investigate these super-Earth planets. So these are the ones that are between the mass of the Earth and Uranus and Neptune. So between about one and five times often the mass. they call them the mini-Neptunes, of,
4: don't they? Super-Earth mini-Neptunes. Mini, yes, yeah.
5: and, and you've hit the nail on the head there because at the moment we don't know which side of the fence... Each individual one falls. We don't know whether they're large rocky planets or small gaseous ones. But the hope with Cheops is that you can measure their their radii so accurately that you can then get their bulk densities much more accurately. And that will allow us to determine whether they're rocky or whether they're gaseous, which has huge implications for whether they may or may not be habitable.
3: Well, as you'll know from this podcast, the UK does a lot in space. But there's one honour the country holds that perhaps isn't something to shout about. Britain is the only nation to develop a successful rocket launcher, launch its own satellite and then abandon the programme. The satellite was Prospero, uh, launched into orbit in 1971. The launcher was Black Arrow, which made its first successful test flight 50 years ago in March 1970. Now, about uh, 12 years ago, when uh, podcasts were in their infancy, we made a series of podcasts for the predecessor of the UK Space Agency, BNSC, on Britain's space history. And uh, one of these podcasts was about black arrow and i spoke to an engineer involved in the program richard tremaine smith
5: to most people in britain farnborough means the september air show when for a week the latest products of the aircraft industry are on show to the world it is also the home of the royal aircraft establishment the government center for research into the problems of space and high-speed flight
0: At that time, I was uh, an apprentice working in the Royal Aircraft Establishment in Space Department, as it was called. This was a a very inspiring time when uh, we were building satellites, we were building rockets, and we were gradually getting the two to come together. We'd been using the Americans, the Scout Launcher, to launch our early satellites, and then uh, through a string of events, starting with Black Knight and then into Black Arrow, we had our own launcher to launch our own satellite so that in 1971 we became the sixth country to actually launch their own satellite on their own rocket. That's almost where it stops there. What sort of rocket was Black Arrow? What was it capable of? By today's standard, it was a very small rocket, but it was a small satellite we wanted to launch. So it was used the same rocket technology as the as the earlier thing, so it was building on the, uh, the hydrogen peroxide uh, fuel, which was a nice sort of clean uh, and uh, high-performance fuel, and we were able to uh, go through to four launches of that particular rocket, and on the, the fourth attempt we put the X-3 satellite into orbit, which became known as Prospero. It was a tradition in those days that the, the X numbers were kept for all the satellites until they were successfully launched. Then they were given a Shakespearean name, and uh, for X3 it was Prospero.
3: The project was cancelled by the government of, of the time in 1971, and yet the launch still went ahead later that year. Why was that?
0: The feeling in in the team at the time was that annual funding, we had the budget, It was cancelled but that meant we'd already had the funding for that year and everyone sort of carried on and I think there was a feeling they kept their heads down and uh, went ahead. Australia was a long way away and it was uh, therefore possible to do things in those days. The team went out. It would be uh, a waste of money and time to call them back so uh, they succeeded. It was launched in October 1971 from Woomera in
3: Australia. You'd moved on by that time but you must have felt that excitement.
0: Yes, you know, it was successful, as had been the previous test launch. It wasn't the end. I mean, it was the end of the rocket line, but the the satellites, uh, X4 and further satellites were produced, and then from that, other satellites based on that technology were produced, and that really gives us the heritage that we're still working on and building on today.
3: Richard Tremaine-Smith, who worked on Prospero, launched by Britain's Black Arrow.
4: I'd like to be head of space department. That's great, isn't it? That's the best title ever. What's so
3: great about that is... It was cancelled. The rocket programme was cancelled, but they still launched it.
4: I mean, that's great.
5: Have you got the budget? Yeah, they've got the annual budget.
3: Go We've got it. the budget. We're going to do it. Yes, it's
4: the equivalent of everybody saying, oh, it's it's nearly the end of the tax year. Quick. <laughs> it's exactly order, that. order this. Quick, get it launched. I mean, do I think
3: that. it's a little unfair to talk about it. Oh, it's, you know, in retrospect, it seems a crazy thing to do, to have cancelled this rocket programme. But, Stuart, this was kind of ahead of its time really Black Arrow
5: yes it was really and I also think um, that you know one reason for continuing and doing that launch anyway is that the it wasn't just the launch it was the satellite that they were that they were sending up so prospero as it became that had a number of experiments on that were designed to understand the space environment so that telecommunication satellites could be built in a more um, space hardened way so there was clear value in continuing um, with that mission um The problem, I think, with um, Black Arrow was that it could only launch these small satellites, and that was fine for these sort of experimental uh, things, but... The kind of telecommunication satellites that they were envisaging that they would then go on to launch were just much larger, and there didn't seem to be an appetite for scaling that rocket up and building bigger launchers. And so um, the the program came to an end.
3: And so now there's the market for for small satellites, as we know from from SpaceX, OneWeb, all these multiple. Constellations and you know, Black Arrow would seem perfect now, but 50 years ago, there just wasn't really the market for that.
5: Absolutely. So, with the um, miniaturization of technology over these last decades, you know, now we really do have a market for these small satellites that simply didn't exist in those days.
3: And, and we should also say that, of course, as a result of, or partly as a result of Prospero the uk did
5: develop a very successful
3: satellite industry absolutely and built you know a good proportion of the world's communication satellites so yes
5: and the black arrow um program itself was like a spin off of the ballistic missiles program so it was it it it, it was like a, um just trying something else out with these missile technologies to see what um what they could do Now, all that shuffling in the background
3: is my co-presenter taking pictures and and looking at space stamps. Sorry, yes. Um, But uh, as you, Sue, pointed out yesterday, with these headphones, and it only just occurred to me when I was looking at Stuart, and I couldn't couldn't get the thought out of my head, they do make us look like Cybermen.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. They've got
3: this wire arrangement over the top, these these new headphones, yeah.
4: And on that thought, uh, yes, I, I actually, before, before we finished, I did want to just pay a very brief tribute to Heather Cooper, who for a generation of people was a, a real sort of breath of fresh air. Um, an astronomer, but she was also really known for presenting space programs as well, like the, the planets in 1985, the star stars in 1988. I actually did work with her a couple of times in the 1990s, um, maybe a bit later too, actually, in the 2000s, when... um, at one point, the Beagle Two lander was going to have its control room at uh, Leicester mm. in the National Space Centre, and I had to interview her live for the for the one o'clock news. And she was always bubbly, very professional, and uh, I know a lot of people were very, very fond of her. And uh, yes, I, I um, you wrote a, a a lovely obituary of her in the Guardian. Yeah,
5: thank you. Yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a pleasure to do that um, because it uh, it it made me. Uh, reflect more on her legacy and realise how considerable it is and I realised that it seemed to me as if she was really one of the first people to take you inside these observatories I remember in her um, planets and the stars programs Mm -hmm. you know she'd be presenting from within um, you know the big observatories and actually showing you inside these places where the real science is done rather than just sort of sitting in a studio or talking to somebody um, in an office uh, about it as well so you got an insight into the world of the astronomers in a way that didn't just present things as as fait accompli.
4: I like the way she'd, and you'd written about this, the way she'd written to, um, astronomer Patrick Moore saying you know I, I'd really like to be an astronomer is it okay I'm a girl effectively and he bless him he wrote back and said yes of, of course and I also like the fact that she worked for I think Top Shop first yeah. or something like that for a few years before realising no I, I want to be an astronomer
5: these were these these quite surprising stories for me as well yeah, um, yeah. As... and she was the
4: first um, female president of the British Astronomical Association so yeah she she broke ground in quite did. a yes. number of ways so. and I
5: worked with her um we were eclipse um guides in china in um 2008 or 2009 what
4: a fab job it that was, Stuart. it was a, it was a
5: fab job and i mean this it was so interesting because we had these lectures to do and there were hundreds of people at, at this thing and just watching how magnetic she was with the audience uh, from the moment she picked up the microphone and began to talk. You know, it was real charisma.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, RAP and uh, our uh, sympathies to all the friends and family who knew her, but uh, she's left quite a legacy, I think.
3: Well, Stuart, thank you very much for coming in and thank you very much for uh, bringing Stamps. in the space. <laughs> and, and look how excited Sue is. Oh, it's guess, my pleasure. Yeah, that, it's, that you've just made her week, possibly her month. <laughs> That's right. Uh, space Boffins is kindly supported by the UK Space Agency. You can find us on social media. You can email us info at boffinmedia.co.uk. Uh, and if you like the podcast, well, I mean, I assume if you like the but you wouldn't <laughs> <You're> bother listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, if you've <laughs> got this <laughs> far, exactly. then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. If you like the podcast, please spread the word, write reviews, uh, send postcards, whatever you'd like to do. Send send stamps. 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 (laughs) Uh, Next month, we'll celebrate 30 years of Hubble. Thanks for listening.